You're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Explaining why these selfless acts are actually advantageous is important. Evolution is a slow and unguided process. Well, I'm Canadian and this is the school I go to and this is how much I love my culture. Let me share this with you. Presented by Henry Standage. All right, welcome to the Western Science Speaks podcast. One of my favorite cliches of science fiction movies is the discovery scene where a character finds something supernatural, but has no idea where or what it came from. This week on the podcast, we have as close to a real-life version of that as you're likely to find, except we're lucky enough to actually know where it came from. Dr. Desmond Moser has been studying meteor fragments that landed on Earth from Mars, and his findings can tell us a lot about the history of the planet, including dispelling some existing notions that the academia community had. He came onto the pod to talk about his findings, take us through the journey that these supernatural artifacts went on to get to Earth, and I even got him to give his take on Elon Musk and his proposed Mars venture. Here we go. I'm sitting down with Dr. Desmond Moser. It's a beautiful day outside. Sometimes when you have the earth science people, it'll be super ugly outside. It can be, it's not as like inspiring, yeah. but it is lovely today. So thanks for coming. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, I guess by the time this podcast comes out, your work will have been published for a couple months now, but this is just before, kind of the calm before the storm, yeah. if you will. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. So let's hop into it. You look at minerals and you look at them on a large time scale. How is it even possible for us to get our hands on minerals from millions of years ago from other places in the solar system? Okay, yeah, well, they, there are some minerals that are just naturally long-lived. They've got incredible survivor, survivor instincts, or sorry, survivor characteristics. And they occur on the rocky planets, of course. We're not talking about um, minerals on planets like uh, the gas giants or such because they're made of uh, light elements but for the rocky planets from you know basically from the asteroid belt inward uh, with Mars, Earth, Venus etc uh, there are these minerals that form as some of them are the first some of the first formed phases to condense out of the solar system cloud uh, when they're when our pre-solar disks first starts out the sun is just forming and so they are and they continue to form through natural processes through you know volcanic activity uh, throughout the last four and a half billion years and uh, now so they're that's just to say that they are these minerals occur they're very tiny but they occur on, on most of the planets that we have samples from now they how do we get those samples that's the other part that's really cool uh, of course we go outside the the building here today on campus and and dig up some sand or and we would find these minerals and some of them would be quite old uh, from the Canadian Shield uh, washed down here by glaciers but uh, from other planets we need a piece of the, the planet's surface to make it here um, from the moon we've got samples that humans have brought back but by and large most of the samples we have are in the form of meteorites so we have pieces of other planets uh, where there's been an energetic event, usually a meteorite strike on another planet, that knocks pieces out of the escape velocity 
or at the escape velocities of that planet's gravitational field, and then they start wandering around in space until the Earth comes and grabs them. See, that just seems so absurd to me that what are the odds they would land here out of all the places? I mean, I'm sure they're floating around for a while, but it, it just seems incredible. Yeah, well, there's actually little bits falling all the time to Earth, and, and uh, there's a steady flux of material going between planets. Some planets, of course, the larger planets can attract more if it's nearby. Uh, but it is pretty amazing. I, I totally agree with you. The, some of the, in fact, some of the pieces of Mars that have been found, there's about 120 or 130 known pieces of Mars that have come to Earth in that way. And there's actually been a few falls recently that where they've actually been observed. So they've seen them, they've seen a fireball coming into the northern Sahara Desert and they go the next day and they find bits of the meteorite and it turns out it's from Mars. When it falls to Earth and then it's discovered, what's the process there? So somebody finds it, they, brings it, they bring it to a lab, it gets identified, and then is it an antique? Is it put away somewhere safe? How, how do you as a researcher get the opportunity to have a look at it? Yeah, that's, this is a, a nice uh, case of a win-win between market dynamics and science. <laughs> so, uh, well, a while ago, meteorites started becoming quite collectible. People were interested in them, so they had value, and the more people wanted them, the more value they had. And historically, a lot of the collecting was done from places like the Antarctic ice caps, uh, although meteorites were found everywhere, uh, through large government-organized uh, expeditions to remote places. But uh, increasingly, in the in the kind of 80s, 90s, uh, more and more um, finds were made in the northern part of Africa, in the Saharan desert region. And so once that became known that these stones were of value, then, then local peoples, nomadic peoples, would keep an eye out for them. And so now there's been a huge treasure trove of meteorites that are available from, from uh, collectors, uh, artisanal collectors, wandering around the desert, spotting these things with very uh, skilled eyes and bringing them to uh, dealers in places like Morocco uh, where people from around the world will come to, to deal with the collector and make deals for the dealers. Now the other part of your question was, uh, oh right, how do we get access to them? So now they're in the hands of the dealers, but it doesn't have true value until it's officially So the dealers, certified. it's the same thing as say an art collector? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. But if you want to purchase a piece of art, you want to know it's a Rembrandt yes. before you spend all that money yes. or, or Tom Thompson. So uh, you want to have it uh, kind of uh, art authenticated. And so that's where the scientists come in. So there's an international uh, meteor meteoritics group that uh, will analyze your, your meteorite and tell you if, where it's from and type it, tell you it's an asteroid, is it from the moon, and then give it a, a unique number. And the, the cost of doing that is that you have to leave a reference slice of the meteorite with the international organization, and that then scientists can study those, those pieces. Uh, so it becomes part of the scientific community, or a small piece of the meteorite. And of course, the, the more research is done and the more special the meteorite is, the more value it has. So then the meteorite collectors are usually uh, very excited uh, to get more research done, not just for monetary value. A lot of them are genuinely thrilled to have a piece of space and yeah. another planet in their possession. So it's a, a win all around. Okay, so let's take it back. So when these meteorites are first sent flying through space down to Earth, 
how do they survive in their signature, how we're able to identify them? How does that last, that trip, that impact? And how are we able to pair it with a planet and say, this okay. is from Mars? Okay, so the surviving part is kind of cool. Uh, they'll launch from another planet as a fragment. And if that planet has an atmosphere, they'll undergo some heating uh, from the energy of the event that launched them in the first place, and maybe a little bit of frictional heating as they leave the planet. Then they're, they're basically uh, at uh, space temperatures, you know, ultra-low temperatures, until they get captured by a, a planet like Earth, in which case you've seen the fireballs, etc. in space. There's, there's that heating of the outer part of the meteorite, but the heating is so short and the, the speed of diffusion of heat into the meteorite is so slow, because rocks are really good insulators, uh, that you only really modify the outer margins of the, the meteorite millimeters and so the interior of the meteorite stays intact so you, but you do have these these there is a chance for some uh, partial melting or you know some uh, fracturing and things during that whole process although not always like the piece of Mars that we studied is remarkable in that it has very little uh, it has been very little affected by that uh, ejection from Mars and the landing on Earth where, where did uh, the piece you looked at land on Earth? It's, it's also from Northwest Africa. Okay. Is there yeah. a reason why they tend to fall in that region? They're falling everywhere, but that's the because it's dry. You know, these things are not, you know, formed on Earth, so they're not stable in a near-Earth, mm -hmm. water-rich environment, so they'll start breaking down. Uh, how have people primarily been looking at these minerals in the past, and how did you and your lab look at them differently? All right, well, we haven't named these minerals yet, and there's a lot of, you know, thousands of different mineral types. People around the world use, geologists use these minerals on Earth to date events in Earth history, uh, and, but what fewer people do, uh, aside from getting an age on these minerals, is to look at the micro-scale and nano-scale structures within these minerals, in addition to getting their age. And that's what we've done differently with uh, our lab here at Western has, you know, developed, assembled some electron microscopy tools, and uh, together with with uh, other groups around the world, done used a technique called atom probe microscopy, where we can actually make a 3D image of the atoms and their distribution inside the mineral. What do these structures tell us? Well, you can imagine with the meteorite impact, uh, there's a lot of force and there's a lot of heat, and those two things do very specific things, uh, leaves very specific signatures within the crystal. Uh, sometimes it scrambles the atoms, sometimes it organizes the atoms into clusters that we don't normally see. So there are all these special micro and nanoscale features uh, that tell us that, oh, this crystal has actually seen a giant impact event, uh, either incredible forces that we only see in the interiors of planets for a microsecond, or from shockwave or the intense, you know, thousands of degree Celsius temperatures that the impact energy creates. Is that the photos that you had that you showed me before? Uh, in the lab, yeah. those, those photos were of one of those crystals sitting in a rock fragment from Mars. And, and there's all these colors which I assume tell you different things about the properties? Those colors were, were differences in light and yeah. the, the rate at which the light passes through or the vibrational directions of the light going through. Uh, I didn't show you some of the 
these other uh, images of the atoms. Uh, they're in our paper, but uh, basically you would see it would look like a like a gumdrop with a clump of sugar, uh, with all those little tiny each sugar particle would be an atom. And so you and you would see little clusters of certain types of elements. Now, sometimes they form little strings. Uh, sometimes the crystal itself is is shifted like a deck of cards, so you get uh, little what they call thin zones or lamellae of, of twinned material within. Mm. So all those things, we don't know of any other way to form those except by meteorite impact. Yeah, we're going to have to find a way to post the pictures with this podcast because <laughs> for listeners, they're awesome. Uh, they're pretty cool to see. What did the crystals tell us about the history of the solar system? Yeah, they can tell us a lot. Uh, they can tell us, as I just described, they, you know, they can tell us whether a giant impact had occurred within the vicinity of that crystal when it was on that mineral, when it was... On the uh, in the crust of the planet, uh, there are also other geochemical um, indicators in there, isotopic uh, compositions that tell us um, things like was that did that um, magma that generated that, that crystal come straight out of the interior of the planet, or was it recycled near the surface of the planet? The most impressive thing I think from these crystals, you can tell whether there was an ocean around or not whether uh, there was liquid water on the planet at the time. I mean, that's huge. Yeah, so you can, they've used it on Earth to show that liquid water was, was here on Earth at least 4.3 billion years ago. So that was already a, a huge advance. And what we've seen with these tools and on crystals uh, from Mars is that they're actually even older. They're the oldest known minerals like this from a solar system body that we know of, uh, from a planet. Um, you can get slightly older ones from the first asteroids that formed. The, the planets didn't make it. But for the planets that made it, these are the oldest planetary uh, zircon crystals. And it, they tell us uh, that actually not much has happened to them since 4.48 billion years ago. We get the age of the crystals, and then we don't see any of these signatures of these giant bombardments. So the, to get to your second point, what does that tell us about anything new about the solar system? There's been a debate raging for you know, 50 years since since the Apollo samples came back about whether the inner solar system suffered this massive bombardment um, long after, like 500 million years after the planets originally formed. Was there a second bombardment and would have sterilized any life forms that would have existed at that time? And what the survival, the, the presence of these little 4.48 billion year old crystals from Mars in near pristine condition tell us is that uh, no that didn't happen. It didn't happen on Mars and if it didn't happen on Mars then it probably didn't happen on Earth. The bombardment? The bombardment, this late, they called it the late heavy bombardment but uh, there's been growing evidence that calling that into question and that theory into question and now we think our, our results support that, that trend. That, that, uh, there was no, there was of course late bombardment events, but nothing sufficient to rework and remelt the whole planet so that any life forms would be. So that squashes any conspiracy that we had life on Mars before Earth. And uh, no, it doesn't actually. What oh. uh, <laughs> actually, that's the purpose of the paper is saying that, based on the Martian evidence alone, forget the rest of the solar system, as early as 4.2 billion years ago, things had cooled down and become. Uh, low impact, uh, shock-free enough to, to host life as we know it, 
potentially, we can't say the life was there or not, but certainly the platform had the right conditions to allow life as we know it to live there 4.2 billion years ago. Mm. And then the next part is that extends to the earth. We know we had water then. Uh, if this late bombardment didn't occur on, on Mars, then there's no reason why it would occur just on Earth. Yeah. And we've known for a few years now that there's water on Mars. I remember, I think, finding that out in elementary school, or maybe early high school. But yes. sounds like that could have broken the news if we hadn't <laughs> found out. Well, that was the, a big one. Yeah, Mars, well, we have the water we have on our Mars today is mostly ice and then mm. subsurface because Mars lost its atmosphere. Uh, early on, though, it was probably more um, clement and more habitable than it certainly than it is today. Now it's dry, relatively arid surface, getting bombarded with lots of cosmic rays that destroy organic molecules. So, uh, in the early days, it would have been a lot more favorable. Mm. And I imagine the likelihood of pieces of Mars coming down to Earth is much higher than other planets because Mars is our closest companion. But could, say, a piece of Jupiter fall onto Earth? Well, you'd probably be... Um, probably not. No, probably not, it, it's, no. It's made of ice and, and light elements that right. probably vaporize well before. So I don't know the properties. Yeah, you need something with a really high melting temperature. And, and material like that from one of the large planets is buried so deeply in the interior of the planet that I can't see any surface bombardment reaching deep enough to get that stuff out. But is it I possible mean, that a planet that far away because we're talking really far away when we get past Mars, could still fall to Earth? Like, could we get a piece of Uranus or Pluto? Uh, I guess when you're getting out there, you're getting to, you know, the Kuiper Belt and, and ice particles. So, yeah, you could get uh, material... You've got uh, carbonaceous chondrites. That it, so there are the, the really primitive meteorites that fall on Earth that come from further out. Another famous one here for Western was the, uh, was the uh, one that fell on the Yukon. Tagish Lake, which was a very primitive uh, meteorite with uh, clay particles and no ice. But uh, Do we know where it was from? Uh, the Tagish Lake? Uh, that's outside of my part okay. of the solar system. So. True. <laughs> yeah. How has Mars changed as a planet from when these minerals first came to exist? I guess we've uh, kind of talked about that a little bit. Sure. Um, yeah, it has changed uh, in the early days, Mars would have been more like Earth in that it had a, a, a core, a molten core and a magnetic field. And you think, well, why does that matter? But the magnetic field actually creates a magnetosphere that protects the planet from, it shields it from incoming cosmic and solar radiation, uh, the type of stuff that destroys life forms and will actually erode an atmosphere, knock an atmosphere off. So by having that spinning molten core, uh, you actually have this, this force field around uh, the planet that protects, protects the atmosphere and the water and makes it more viable. Mm. You seem like a good person to ask. What's your thoughts on Elon Musk wanting to live on Mars? Oh. Well, Certainly the most qualified guest we've had to answer this question. <laughs> well, there's a whole bunch of layers to that. You know, I guess my own, you know, I'm planetary geologist, but I'm also a nurse scientist, and, and I was uh, I was at one point in charge of a graduate program in, in environment and sustainability here, 
So I have a feeling like I at one one point I laud the idea of going to a, a place that's relatively uninhabitable because we'll learn something about technologically, same way we learned a lot with the Apollo missions. On the other hand, in terms of a mass migration, I I think we. We're just going to mess up another planet the way we were messing up this one. So right. Well, you I said Mars hasn't changed that much in the 4.2 billion years, right? And it kind of made me think. Uh, oh, I see. Oh, no, actually, it's it, it didn't. It has changed quite a bit in that it went from this period when it had flowing water in the early times, when it had an atmosphere and was protected, to about three and a half billion years ago when it started losing its atmosphere, started drying out. Right, but so, it, it's beautiful that it hasn't like changed that much. Compared ah. to say Earth, which we've totally messed up, but yeah, well, there's uh, that's all depends on where you're you're looking at it from. Uh, the Earth is is changing a lot, but it's not changing beyond the the uh, limits of what it's where it's been in the past. Uh, the bad part of its changes are are it's more it's not about the Earth, it's about us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. So after we're gone, the Earth will restabilize. Right. The new year I keep reading everywhere is 2050. Hell yeah. Scary. But we've got a big chance. We, we can, we've got enough self-awareness that we can do it. So. Yeah. So. Are these pieces of Mars the furthest back we can find conditions supportive of life outside the Earth in our solar system? In our solar system? Uh, probably right now, yes. The there aren't many ancient fragments of, let's say, there are no ancient fragments of the Earth left. So the oldest pieces of the Earth that we have are these tiny little zircon crystals. The rocks that they form from are totally gone. All we have are these little survivor crystals. Uh, so we don't have any rock record from this period of 4.4 you know, to 4.2 billion years. The oldest rock on Earth known uh, is 4.0 billion years. Uh, when we get back to uh, other bodies, the the, the moon, um, it also uh, a lot of its early rock record is it's been modified, but certainly there's more old material on the moon than on Earth. Uh, Mars is really probably the best place. Uh, we haven't been to Venus. We haven't, you know, that's an extreme place. Uh, Mercury as well. Uh, temperatures there are getting near the close the melting temperatures of some rock. Uh, but in terms of Mars, it looks like it, like what are the odds that we get a piece of the oldest crust known in the inner solar system of the 120 or so pieces of Mars that make it to Earth? So the odds are there's probably a lot more of this stuff up there on, on Mars. And uh, this is what we highlighted at the close of the paper, is that if this can be sampled by a relatively recent meteorite impact with Mars, a small one that sent this thing to Earth, uh, it's probably accessible to human missions and rovers. Yeah, how how far back do you think this piece could be from? When do you think it flew off? Oh, they've actually done an, so once it gets out of the atmosphere or away from the planet, it actually gets bombarded with cosmic rays and changes the meteorite chemically. So you can date, you know, the longer it's in outer space, the more these changes happen. So you can actually get a rough age of when it was launched. So it's, the estimate is, you know, on the order of between five and 20 million years ago is when the piece that we studied left Mars. It's a long trip. Long trip. <laughs> and then it's probably been on Earth, uh, you know, at most 100,000 years. So. Oh, my goodness. 
I thought being from Kingston to London was bad. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it takes longer to get from Merge to... That's it for us this week. I hope you enjoyed the interview. As I mentioned, there are some stunning photos from Dr. Moser's research. If you want to check them out, they'll be on our website. I highly recommend you do. But for now, I'm Henry Standage signing out. Thanks for tuning in.